If you have your Bible, will you take and turn to Psalm 78? And we are going to continue walking through the psalm. We begin in verse 70. I'm sorry, we, we're in 78. We begin in verse 32. And we are going to go down to verse 39 today. Psalm 78, verse 32 through 39. Let me read to you the passage, if you'll follow along, and we will pray and ask the Lord to bless the preaching of His Word, and then we will get into it. Psalm 78, verse 32. Hear the Word of the Lord. In spite of all this, they still sinned. Despite His wonders, they did not believe. So he made their days vanish like a breath and their years in terror. When he killed them, they sought him. They repented and sought God earnestly. They remembered that God was their rock, the Most High God, their Redeemer. But they flattered him with their mouths. They lied to him with their tongues. Their heart was not steadfast toward him. They were not faithful to his covenant. Yet he, being compassionate, atoned for their iniquity and did not destroy them. He restrained his anger often and did not stir up all his wrath. He remembered that they were but flesh, a wind that passes and comes not again. Our Father, we do ask this morning that you will bless not only the reading of your word, but the the way that we receive the Word. We ask that You will give us eyes that will see, ears that will hear, that these words may not fall on hard, packed ground, but that we might be good ground, that, would take, that the seed might take root and produce fruit within us. Lord, we give that to You, how it will change us. We simply want to hear. We simply want to understand that we might Obey. So bless, please, we pray. For your sake, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Are you familiar with the phrase plot twist? You know what a plot twist is? If you're reading a book, I guess the plot twists are there, but when I think of a plot twist, I think of movies. Generally, if you're not familiar, there's probably some kids that might not grab that, and that's okay. When you're following the story and you kind of get an idea, you have a grasp on what's going on, then all of a sudden it takes a sudden turn. It's a surprising twist. And so it's a twist at the end of the plot. and makes you say, I never saw that coming. Sometimes the plot twist is very obvious and it's not really a twist. It's no surprise. I saw that coming from a mile away. Um, if you're watching a movie, you know, if you're watching like a crime movie, I like to watch the crime uh, detective shows and things like that. And so generally, if you're, if you're watching a, a British one, they do a really good job of throwing the, 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 the one piece of information that ties it all together at the end. And oftentimes, it's a, it's a, it's a very uh, su- surprising uh, way that they put it all together. Uh, sometimes, though, they're really obvious, and you can tell from the very beginning, like, that's the guy. You know, like on Star Trek, what was it, the red shirt, the guy that always wore the red shirt? He was the guy that was going to die. 
Is anybody a Star Trek fan in here? You know what I'm talking about? Is the red shirt, guys? Okay, Evan's not. So when you see that, you're like, all right, he's not going to make it. Um, but when the, when the hero of the story gets in trouble five minutes in, you know he's going to be okay because that's John Wayne. Or, you know, he's, got a, he's the reason we came. So we're not going to watch him die right away. Um, so the, the, the plot twist is there to, to kind of pull you in and then surprise you at the very end. In this passage, we have three plot twists. And so just because of what, how, how I'm seeing it like that, we're going to just title this, Not What You Would Expect. Because uh, in this, we have these three instances where we see something that we probably weren't expecting to read. We probably didn't expect it to go that way, and yet, sudden twist, we get it there. So I want to walk through them, and, and uh, we'll probably make some good time as we walk through these, and then try to see why the psalmist put it there in the first place, why the psalmist specifically pulls out these events, and why he puts it in the way that he does. First of all, we see that despite God's wonders, Israel was still unbelieving. If you look at verse number 32, and we see it in verses 32 and 33, it says, in spite of all this, and all all this is verse 31 verses that we've been reading. And we can see, excuse me, in two places, the all this. So this would be the wonders. And so uh, back in uh, verses 26-31, the immediate uh, context, we see uh, the, the, the wonders in judgment. How God uh, answered their craving. He gave them the food that they craved. But the thing that they craved, the thing that they wanted the most was the thing that ended up being their destruction. The, the, the meat on the ground, the quail that God sent. So we see, I mean, and this was a miracle that, I mean, quail don't just all migrate in death all around one particular camp, but that's what God did. So it was a wonder, but it was a wonder in judgment. But then earlier on, for instance, beginning in verse number 11, we can see the wonders of His saving power. And the saving power or the salvation of God was a wonder shown to Israel so that they would believe. If you look at back, if you skip back into verse number 11, you can see there, it says that they forgot His works and wonders that He had shown them. In the sight of their fathers, He performed wonders in the land of Egypt and the fields of Zone. And then 13-16 through talks about how He split the Red Sea and how He brought water from the rock and how He protected them with the pillars of cloud and fire. And all of these things are not natural. These are not normal things. They were wonders. They were miracles designed for the people to see that God had saving power. And the saving power should have then led them to understand and believe that God had sustaining power. But, that's, that's the, that's the, here's the plot twist. Yet, they still sinned. So the plot is, God did wonders. Believe, right? Nope. They didn't believe. They still sin. Verse 32, in spite of all this, they still sin. Despite His wonders, they did not believe. This is a reference to Numbers chapter 14. And I won't read all of that, but I may refer to that a few times in, uh, this morning. And I would encourage you to go and read Numbers 14. Numbers 14 is the event when Israel dis- decided that they were not going to enter the Promised Land. If you go back to Sunday school uh, days and you remember the old song, 12 men went to spy in Canaan, 
Ten were bad and two were good. That's, that's the context of Numbers 14. And the people dis- listened to the ten bad spies and said, we can't win. We can't go in there. They're bigger than us. They're stronger than us. The cities are fortified. Yes, it is a great land. Yes, there are wonderful things there. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. We, yes, we believe all that, but it's just too far out of our reach. We can't do it. Well, God was bringing them to a place and God knew how big the people were. He made those people. God knew the the challenges that faced them and God was not bringing a surprise upon them because for the last uh, so many years that they had been in the wilderness, one and a half years or so, they'd been in the wilderness, they had seen how God protected them. They had seen how God had brought them out of Egypt when the people were bigger and stronger than they were. They had seen how God had protected them and provided the food in the wilderness and the water from rocks. They had seen that God does not get limited by the people He is working for. God is, is, is not limited by anything, and God is not challenged by anything. And yet, in Numbers 14, they said, we will not go. And so God said, fine, you will not go. And, uh, and part of the, the, the complaint in Numbers chapter 14 was that the, the people of Israel said, our children are going to be, uh, uh, our children are going to perish in the land. Our children are going to be uh, uh, smitten down by, the, by the, 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 the giants that are in the land. And they're no match. We're no match. And we can't even protect ourselves nor our children. And so God says, fine, you're not going to go. And your children, who you said would die, are actually going to win. They're going to grow up and they're going to go in and they're going to Take over the land. Numbers chapter 14 and verse 11, God says, How long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I've done among them? He's kind of throwing his hands up. I've shown you everything. You should be believing. And this is the twist that they will not believe. So verse 33 back in Psalm 78 tells us what God does. God, and we can see this as an act of mercy because God has not given them up. It says in verse 33, He made their days vanish like a breath, and in their, and their years in terror. Now this is referring to uh, the judgment that God brought on the nation as a whole. When He says, you will not go in, fine. That's the, that'll, be your, that'll be your punishment. You won't go in. You, you said that you're going to die. That's exactly what's going to happen. You don't want to go where I've commanded you to go. Then you will die in the place where you think is better. And so verse 35 of Numbers 14, He says, Surely this I will do to all the wicked congregation who are gathered together against Me. In this wilderness they shall come to a full end, and there they shall die. The psalmist gets very poetic in the way that he describes this end by saying that their days vanish like a breath. Vanish like a vapor. Uh, The different translations are helpful here. Uh, One says that their lives ended in futility. It ended in nothing. Because remember, the wilderness was not the end goal. Nobody was thinking, all we need to do is get out of Egypt and we can survive in the wilderness. They all left believing that God had a special place for them and they didn't make the goal. So all of that work, it'd be like going to, um, uh, you know, I don't know, I can't remember how many years you do of medical school, but let's say that you do all the years of medical school and then drop out uh, at the end and, and become a plumber. Like you, you ended your days in futility like, and you have a lot of debt to show for it. And this is basically what Israel has done, but not with a career, but with the entire lives. Another translation uh, says, and I like it, it just says that uh, the days he consumed in their vanity. It was just nothingness. They basically were waiting to die in the wilderness. The, the, new, uh, the new English translation uh, says that they simply died unsatisfied. 
They died unsatisfied. And that really connects us to the earlier passages we talked about, that God gave them what they want, but he gave no satisfaction with it. And so then the New English translation summarizes that by saying, they died unsatisfied. Very simply and very sad. That's the first plot twist. Verse 34 tells us the second plot twist. Despite Israel's words of repentance, they were unfaithful. Look at verse 34, please. It says that they remember, um, verse 34, when he killed them, they sought him. They repented and sought God earnestly. They remembered that God was their rock. The most high God was their redeemer. Here's the plot. They repent, right? This is, this is what the judgment of verse 33 was intended to do. All that God has done for his people in the blessing and in the disciplining is to bring them into obedience, to bring them into repentance. And so they would not believe the wonders and the judgment, so God doesn't give up. He just puts the pressure on more. And verse 34 seems to indicate that, all right, it worked. It finally took. And they repent. Uh, this, is, uh, this is expecting that the repentance now is, is going to do the trick. It's going to last. And it brought about the intended repentance. Now, depending on which translation you're using, you may see a different word here for repentance. Um, many of you may have a Bible that says the word return. And that's, that's actually the more literal uh, meaning of the word. It means to return. Now, repentance is a really big, deep, deep, dark hole that we're not going to try to go down because we may not come out of it in time to finish the rest of the sermon and actually have lunch today. So we're not going to go down that hole. But I will just explain that when the Bible talks about repent, there are generally two different words that it's using, okay? And one word means to change your mind, and another word means to return. It means to turn the, from one thing to another thing, okay? And in they're very nuanced, and, and one can mean one thing because sometimes it says that God repents, and sometimes it talks about man's repentance, and man's repentance is always different than God's repentance. But what we can understand here is that essentially repentance is the, both the changing of the mind and the direction that the, that the person is going. Because when you change your mind, it changes the behavior, it changes the direction, it changes the, the action that you're going to do. And this is why we can understand what Israel's done here as, quote, repentance, even though it's, it might just be simply return. They return. Let me, let me explain how, uh, what, what, what we see here. First of all, we can see that Israel returned, or they repented. God's desire for Israel was not simply to change their mind. God's desire for Israel was to get them to obey. And to do that, He had to change their thinking. They thought, God can't take care of us in the wilderness. They thought, we'll die if we go in there by the giants. So God needed to change their mind, but that's not all that God was after. God was after their actions because He didn't want them to just be convinced, oh yeah, we could win if we went. He wanted them to actually go in. And so we can see that the repentance there was twofold. It was a thinking and, and a, a thinking that produced an action here. And so we're not trying to dissect the two, but just kind of keep them together and, and see the end result, the ultimate result of repentance. Uh, one writer explained that the call for repentance on the part of man is a call for him to return to his creaturely and covenant dependence on God. So while repentance does begin in the mind, and it is a change of mind, it's intended for us to return. And so it's a rethinking and a returning. So uh, it depends on the context that we're talking about, which repentance we want to be, we, we want to be thinking of. But in this context, we're kind of seeing it as both and, uh, and both, both and. 
uh, so when they returned, that meant, as we look back in Psalm 78, that they sought God earnestly. We read that verse there in verse number 35. I'm sorry, verse 34, that they repented and sought God earnestly. So this is the context that we need to be thinking of repentance. Not just simply a change of mind, but a change of behavior. No longer are they running from God. No longer are they distrusting, disobeying God. They're actually seeking after God. You can uh, read about uh, this a little bit in Deuteronomy 4, which we just read, uh, had read for us a little bit ago. And in that, God promised the people that when they disobeyed Him, uh, well, Moses promised the people that this is the word of the Lord, that when you disobey God, He will bring you into judgment. And part of the judgment would be captivity. And God says, from there, from their captivity, you will seek the Lord your God and you will find Him if you search after Him with all your heart and with all your soul. When you are in tribulation and all these things come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and obey His voice. This is what God has been after the whole time. Repentance. Secondly, Israel's repentance is because of remembering. Verse 35, they repented, they remembered. What did they remember? Two parts, kind of the same thing, but we, we split them. We first remembered that God was their rock. They Secondly, they remembered that the Most High God was their Redeemer. To be the rock... When, when the Bible talks about God being the rock, it's, it's generally referring to the fact that He is their refuge. He is the place which they can run to and find shelter and find safety. He is their protection. If you say of a person, maybe a person that's a really good friend, and you say, that person has been my rock, that means that's been a person I could lean on. It's been a person who's been strong for me when I've been weak. And Israel could say this about their God. Uh, the psalmist wrote in Psalm 18.2, The Lord is my rock and my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge. So this is, this is what Israel is re remembering, that we can depend on God. We can hide in God. I, I, whenever I think of the rock of refuge, I think about being out in the mountains somewhere, and then a thunderstorm uh, comes, and you need to find a place to escape. And so you find a cave. You find a place where you can shelter underneath the rock and be safe and secure in the midst of the trouble. And this was what they remembered. Secondly, it says that they remembered that the Most High God was their Redeemer. Now, do you remember last week we looked at the phrase Most High, and we did a whole bunch of etymology and realized that the words Most High means He's the highest. And so, there's no one higher than Him. Israel's complaining, Israel's rebellion proved that they did not really believe that God was most high. They believed that their desires were most high. Their wishes, their needs were most high. And so they treated God like a servant, like a slave. God, do this for us. We won't believe in you until you prove your power. But then here, in judgment, they were, their minds were reset and they really understood that the most high is God and He was the one who redeemed them. This sounds good. This is a good plot. We expect to see it stick. But it didn't. Plot twist number two. Not only after Israel repented and remembered, they relapsed. The repentance didn't stick. Notice in verse 36, they flattered him with their mouths. They lied to him with their tongues. Their heart was not steadfast toward him. They were not faithful to his covenant. Kind of a big letdown. But it's a little less of a letdown because it keeps happening. I expect this to happen when I read of Israel now. 
Oh, you're doing good? When are you going to fail? When it, how long is this one going to last? You said you were sorry. We will see. The repentance didn't last. First of all, because they were unsteady. It says that their heart was not steadfast. They were not fixed. They were not determined. Sometimes in the Psalms we can read, Oh God, my heart is fixed. Or steadfast. And that would be the exact opposite of Israel here. We're not fixed. We're not steadfast. We're not really sure. We're not committed to you. One translation wrote that they, they just simply translated like this. They were not really committed to Him. They weren't committed to God. And therefore, their repentance didn't stick. Secondly, it's because they were unfaithful. They were unfaithful to the covenant of God. This, this, this word keeps popping up when we think about Israel. The unfaithfulness of the people of God. And I want to notice, I want to point out here that the repentance was temporary because it was only of words, not of heart. Look at back at the way that the re- repentance is being described. Verse number 36 says that they flattered him with their mouths, talking of words. It says that they lied to him with their tongues, talking about words again. It sounds good, it might even look good. But it wasn't truly right. Because it was a repentance only of words, out of mouths. Derek Kidner calls this then meaningless repentance. You went through all of the motions, but it doesn't mean anything. Kind of like when you were a kid and you got in trouble and your mom said, tell your brother you're sorry. And you said, I'm sorry. You said it. You didn't mean any of it. I'm sorry I got caught. I'm going to try harder next time not to get caught. But I'm not sorry I did it. That's meaningless repentance. I was reading this week, I've been, I told the folks on Wednesday night, I've been reading in my personal uh, Bible reading, reading through the Pentateuch, and I'm in Deuteronomy right now, in Deuteronomy chapter 5. And it's, it's amazing how, I think Donnie kind of mentioned this, when, you, when you're in one place and then you're, you're brought to another place in the Scriptures and you can begin to see all these connections. And so I'm in Deuteronomy chapter 5. So that's why a lot of Psalm 78 has been ringing in my ears of Numbers chapters 11 and 14 and things. But Deuteronomy chapter 5, uh, Deuteronomy, the whole book of Deuteronomy is about Moses, uh, is, is, he knows he's going to die soon, and so Moses is giving the people final instructions. And so you could read it as a series of sermons from Moses to the people of Israel. And in that, he's telling them, he repeats the Ten Commandments, and he tells them, listen, Remember what God has done. Remember what God has did good for us. And remember what God did to your dad and mom when, when they wouldn't obey. And remember what God did to grandpa when he didn't obey. Uh, so you guys get it right this time. And in Deuteronomy chapter 5, uh, Moses gives the Ten Commandments. And Moses basically reissues the covenant that God has given to his people. And the people of Israel, just like the last generation, they say, we're going to do it. We're not going to do what our grandfathers did. We're not going to fail like our fathers did. We're going to keep the law. And in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 29, God comes to Moses because God, Moses and God in Israel, there's, there's, you know, it's like junior high. God, God, was, God would talk to Moses and Moses would go talk to Israel and Israel would go talk to Moses and Moses would go talk to God. And Moses was this middleman. He was the mediator between these guys. And in, this, and in this story, the people tell Moses, you tell God that we are going to obey. We're going to keep this covenant. So Moses goes to God and of course God knows already, but Moses goes to God and God says this in Deuteronomy 4, uh, 5, verse 29. Oh, that they had such a heart as this always, to fear me and to keep all my commandments, that it might go well with them and with their descendants forever. God is not listening to their words. He is looking at their heart. 
And God knows that their heart will not keep them repenting long. And since this repentance of Psalm 78, and basically every other repentance that we read of Israel, was of, was of, of words only and not of heart, it didn't stick. Third one is in verse number 38. Yet he, speaking of God, being compassionate, atoned for their iniquity, and did not destroy them. He restrained his anger often and didn't stir up all his wrath. He remembered that they were but flesh, a wind that passes and comes not again. Here's the plot. You'd think God would get tired of Israel. Breaking their word, deceiving, lying, and at some point God's going to say, enough, I've had it with you, I'm done, we're through, you're dead. Expect the full wrath of God. They're too rebellious. It will never work with this people. How many chances did Israel have to get it right? And they blew every one of them. But the twist is that yet he was compassionate. He restrained his anger. It says there that he atoned for their iniquity. The word atoned or atonement is is a sacrificial term. We talked about this a little bit on Wednesday night. My ESV study Bible has a little note here that says that it means that he accepted the sacrifices that they offered and conveyed his blessing of forgiveness, which, which goes, helps us to understand that during this time of up and down repentance and disbelief and, and disobedience and rebellion and obedience and all that stuff, Israel was offering their sacrifices. And God knew that it would not last. And God knew when they were not uh, wholeheartedly committed to Him. And yet, when they offered their sacrifices, He did what He said He would do when when they offered them. He received them. And He conveyed upon them the blessings of, of, of forgiveness. It says that He restrained His anger often. Didn't pour out His full wrath. He did not destroy them. And notice why. He restrained because he remembered. But did he remember that they were just flesh? Just people? Sinners are going to sin. I like to say it this way sometimes. Heathens going to heave. They were just a passing wind. A passing breath. Just here for a short time. And quickly gone. Psalm 103 says, He knows our frame. And he remembers that we are dust. See, even though Israel was unfaithful and unsteady, God was unchanging. And God always keeps his promises. Malachi 3.6 says, I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, O children of Jacob, you are not consumed. The reason that the children of Jacob are not consumed is not because they deserve it. It's because God is unchanging. And God said He would do something with Israel and bless them. And He will. And He has. Man is unstable and unfaithful and unsteady and uncommitted and un-everything negative here. But God is unchanging and always faithful. And the great faithfulness of God is seen in the fact that He is ever merciful. Lamentations 3.22 says His mercies never come to an end. 
This is great news for Israel and for us. Because the three times that we find plot twists in these passages remind us that we shouldn't be surprised. These are things that we actually can expect. And we should expect them. The faithfulness of God to His people reminds us that there are some things that we can expect. First of all, we can expect that man's ways are predictable and sinful. Heathen's going to heath. If you're a sinner, you're going to sin. We offer our prayer of confession to God. God, I'm a sinner. I'm sorry. I shouldn't have done that. I I know I did it wrong. You're going to do it again. You're going to sin. The only way you're going to stop sinning is to stop living. Because as long as you're in this body of flesh, you have a sinful nature. And no matter how good your intentions are, or how many tears you cry over your sin, you're going to sin. No surprise there. Man's repentance, apart from a changed heart, will always be temporary and ineffective. Here's another not surprise. God is not surprised when you sin. He knows. He knows more about us than we know about us. He knows how many sins we have left if we're keeping track. God has a higher count than we do, even of the ones we know about. Other people may sin, and their sin may surprise us. God is never surprised by sin. God has always called us sin. Even when we confess our sins, it means we are simply telling God we agree with what He has already called us. God has called you a sinner. When you confess your sins, you're saying, you're right, God. I am. Your best efforts, then, apart from Christ, are not enough. And like Israel, we might be convicted of our sin and determine that we're going to do better next time. And we're going to try harder. And we're going to make sure that that never happens again. And then it does. And then we we double our efforts. And we say, you know what, I'm not going to let this happen to me again. I'm not going to give in to that temptation. I'm not going to let those words slip out of my mouth. Or I'm not going to get on that site. Or I'm not going to look at that stuff. Or I'm not going to do whatever it is that you know you shouldn't be doing. And yet, while you're saying you're not going to do it, you're making plans to do it. Or you find yourself doing the same thing you said you wouldn't do. How is that? Shouldn't be a surprise. You're a sinner. Just like me. The problem is not necessarily the sinful deeds that you're doing. The problem is the heart that is sinful within each of us. It's that nature. You need a new heart. Things that we do are simply the fruit of the problem. The heart is the root of the problem. God's new covenant, and we talk about and we're, we, give, we give glory to God for, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the new covenant that He brings, involves giving sinners new hearts. New hearts that can obey and believe. But here's, here's what I want you to get. If you don't get anything else, get this. Since God is not surprised when you sin, 
And God knows that the problem that you and I deal with is a heart problem. And that no matter how many times you try and try and try, you're going to fail. God's not waiting on you to make the first move. God's not sitting back saying, as soon as they take a step towards me, I will come to them. It's not the way it goes. Because God knows that all of our repentance is temporary at best. Your first step is useless if you have no faith. If you have a stony heart. Here's why we need Jesus. Because He established the new covenant. He is the one who took the first step and every other step in between. One of the great realizations of the Gospel is when you realize just how much all means. How much of the work of salvation did God do? All of it? Not most of it? Not 99% of it? You didn't do anything. Not even the last part. He saved you because of His great mercy. Not because of our great worthiness. Because we don't have any. No surprise there. No surprise then that God is faithful and merciful. Tonight we'll, we'll come back and look at that a little bit more. God has acted without us needing to take a first step. God has already done the work for salvation. This story in Psalm 78 and the whole story of the Bible is all about the faithfulness of God to a very unfaithful, undeserving, unworthing, unwanting people. God is always merciful and compassionate. He does not give up on His people. Which means then, if you are one of God's children, no matter how many times you fail, there will always be mercy. His mercy is more. Praise the Lord. Stronger than darkness, new every morn. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. God may give up some to their sin. Romans 1, He may turn some over to their sin, but He never turns over His children. Jesus said in John 6, All the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. If you're in, you're in. You don't have to worry about that. But you don't get in by doing something. You get in by being brought in. It's the only way it works. What do we do then with this passage? Let me just make three quick statements. First of all, if God has turned your heart, given you the faith to believe through the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ, then you must repent and believe. If God has changed your mind, then you must turn to Him and believe. And for those that are unconverted, we must pray for them that God will turn their hearts because we can't turn their hearts, can we? 
we can't give heart transplants from stony hearts to hearts that believe and hearts that will, 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 will trust in Christ. So we pray for God to do the only thing that, the, the, what only God can do. Sometimes I, I think we, we, there's a disconnect because we pray for God to do a work in other people's hearts and yet we think that we've got to do that same work in our hearts. That's not how it works. God can only do the work in Joe Blow's heart, and he's got to do the work in your heart too. So let's pray for that. And above all, let us give God glory and praise for his faithful mercy, his steadfast love, and for Jesus the Son, who is our atoning Sacrifice. He atoned for our sin through the Son, Jesus Christ. Praise be to God for His mercy and for His goodness toward His people. Let's pray. Gracious, gracious Father, not one ounce of any of us has any worthiness of Your mercy or Your grace. By the definitions of mercy and grace, we don't deserve it. Forgive us for the assumption or even the intentional thoughts that we had to do something to earn this love, this mercy, this grace, or maintain it. Help us, please. Open our eyes to see how broken and helpless we are so that then we might see how merciful you are, how good and kind you are. If we're already in, you've been brought nigh by the blood of Christ, then we pray that you would help us to see how good and gracious you've been to us in redeeming broken sinners like us. Of course, if there are some people in the room who don't, don't understand, they don't believe, may they never think that there's something that, that they're going to do. Even some prayer they're going to pray, or even some work, action that they're going to do that's going to save them. May their eyes be open to the gospel that is done for us. Of course, there, there is that, that ultimate obedience in the end, but may we get it in the right order for the right reasons. Oh God, we need to be reminded time and time again. You know what we need to think and what we need to be remembering. You know each person in the room and what we need to be hearing this morning, what we need to be thinking and what flaws are in our, our thinking and our understanding. God, please help us. Please save the unconverted Give them the new heart that will cause them to believe and turn, repent and obey the gospel. And in every situation, in every case, even in the judgment of hardened sinners, may you be glorified. May your mercy be exalted. May your grace be extolled by your people. Help us then do that 
which you created us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.